The Meaning of Relativity, Lecture 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Meaning of Relativity, Lecture 1. Space and Time in Pre-Relativity Physics. The theory of relativity is intimately connected with the theory of space and time. I shall therefore begin with a brief investigation of the origin of our ideas of space and time, although in doing so I know that I introduce a controversial subject. The object of all science, whether natural science or psychology, is to coordinate our experiences and to bring them into a logical system. How are our customary ideas of space and time related to the character of our experiences? The experiences of an individual appear to us arranged in a series of events. In this series, the single events which we remember appear to be ordered according to the criterion of earlier and later, which cannot be analyzed further. There exists, therefore, for the individual an I-time, or subjective time. This in itself is not measurable. I can indeed associate numbers with the events in such a way that a greater number is associated with the later event than with an earlier one, but the nature of this association may be quite arbitrary. This association I can define by means of a clock by comparing the order of events furnished by the clock with the order of the given series of events. We understand by a clock something which provides a series of events which can be counted and which has other properties of which we shall speak later. By the aid of speech, different individuals can, to a certain extent, compare their experiences. In this way, it is shown that certain sense perceptions of different individuals correspond to each other, while for other sense perceptions, no such correspondence can be established. We are accustomed to regard as real those sense perceptions which are common to different individuals, and which therefore are, in a measure, impersonal. The natural sciences, and in particular the most fundamental of them, physics, deal with such sense perceptions. The conception of physical bodies, in particular of rigid bodies, is a relatively constant complex of such sense perceptions. A clock is also a body or a system in the same sense, with the additional property that the series of events which it counts is formed of elements, all of which can be regarded as equal. The only justification for our concepts and system of concepts is that they serve to represent the complex of our experiences. Beyond this, they have no legitimacy. I am convinced that the philosophers have had a harmful effect upon the progress of scientific thinking, in removing certain fundamental concepts from the domain of empiricism, where they are under our control, to the intangible heights of the a priori. For even if it should appear that the universe of ideas cannot be deduced from experience by logical means, but is, in a sense, a creation of the human mind, without which no science is possible, Nevertheless, this universe of ideas is just as little independent of the nature of our experiences as clothes are of the form of the human body. This is particularly true of our concepts of time and space, 
which physicists have been obliged by the facts to bring down from the Olympus of the a priori in order to adjust them and put them in a serviceable condition. We now come to our concepts and judgments of space. It is essential here also to pay strict attention to the relation of experience to our concepts. It seems to me that Poincaré clearly recognized the truth in the account he gave in his book, La science et la hypothèse. Among all the changes which we can perceive in a rigid body, those are marked by their simplicity, which can be made reversibly by an arbitrary motion of the body. Poincaré calls these changes in position. By means of simple changes in position, we can bring two bodies into contact. The theorems of congruence, fundamental in geometry, have to do with the laws that govern such changes in position. For the concept of space, the following seems essential. We can form new bodies by bringing bodies B, C, up to body A. We see that we continue body A. We can continue body A in such a way that it comes into contact with any other body, X. The ensemble of all continuations of body A we can designate as the space of the body A. Then it is true that all bodies are in the space of the arbitrarily chosen body A. In this sense, we cannot speak of space in the abstract, but only of the space belonging to a body A. The Earth's crust plays such a dominant role in our daily life, in judging the relative positions of bodies, that it has led to an abstract conception of space, which certainly cannot be defended. In order to free ourselves from this fatal error, we shall speak only of bodies of reference, or space of reference. It was only through the theory of general relativity that refinement of these concepts became necessary, as we shall see later. I shall not go into detail concerning those properties of the space of reference which led to our conceiving points as elements of space and space as a continuum, nor shall I attempt to analyze further the properties of space which justify the conception of continuous series of points or lines. If these concepts are assumed, together with their relation to the solid bodies of experience, then it is easy to say what we mean by the three-dimensionality of space. To each point, three numbers, x1, x2, x3, coordinates, may be associated in such a way that this association is uniquely reciprocal and that x1, x2, and x3 vary continuously when the point describes a continuous series of points, a line. It is assumed in pre-relativity physics that the laws of the orientation of ideal rigid bodies are consistent with Euclidean geometry. What this means may be expressed as follows. Two points marked on a rigid body form an interval. Such an interval can be oriented at rest, relatively to our space of reference, in a multiplicity of ways. If now the points of this space can be referred to coordinates x1, x2, x3 in such a way that the differences of the coordinates delta x1, delta x2, delta x3 of the two ends of the interval furnish the same sum of squares. 
s squared equals delta x1 squared plus delta x2 squared plus delta x3 squared. For every orientation of the interval, then the space of reference is called Euclidean and the coordinates Cartesian. It is sufficient indeed to make this assumption in the limit for an infinitely small interval. Involved in this assumption, there are some which are rather less special, to which we must call attention on account of their fundamental significance. In the first place, it is assumed that one can move an ideal rigid body in an arbitrary manner. In the second place, it is assumed that the behavior of ideal rigid bodies towards orientation is independent of the material of the bodies and their changes of position in the sense that if two intervals can once be brought into coincidence, they can always and everywhere be brought into coincidence. Both of these assumptions, which are of fundamental importance for geometry and especially for physical measurements, naturally arise from experience. In the theory of general relativity, their validity needs to be assumed only for bodies and spaces of reference which are infinitely small compared to astronomical dimensions. The quantity s we call the length of the interval. In order that this may be uniquely determined, it is necessary to fix arbitrarily the length of a definite interval. For example, we can put it equal to one unit of length. Then the lengths of all other intervals may be determined. If we make the xv linearly dependent upon parameter lambda, xv equals av plus lambda bv. We obtain a line which has all the properties of the straight lines of Euclidean geometry. In particular, it easily follows that by laying off n times the interval s upon a straight line, an interval length of n times s is obtained. A length, therefore, means the result of a measurement carried out along a straight line by means of a unit measuring rod. It has significance which is as independent of the system of coordinates as that of a straight line, as will appear in the sequel. We come now to a train of thought which plays an analogous role in the theories of special and general relativity. We ask the question, besides the Cartesian coordinates which we have used, are there other equivalent coordinates? An interval has a physical meaning which is independent of the choice of coordinates, and so has the spherical surface which we obtain as the locus of the endpoints of all equal intervals that we lay off from an arbitrary point of our space of reference. If xv as well as x prime v, v from 1 to 3, are Cartesian coordinates of our space of reference, then the spherical surface will be expressed in our two systems of coordinates by the equations sum delta xv squared equals constant sum delta x prime v squared equals constant. How must the x prime v be expressed in terms of the xv in order that equations 2 and 2a 
may be equivalent to each other. Regarding the x prime v expressed as functions of the x v, we can write by Taylor's theorem for small values of the delta x v, delta x prime v equals the summation of dou x prime v over dou x alpha times delta x alpha plus one half the summation of dou squared x prime v over dou x alpha dou x beta times delta x alpha delta x beta and so forth. If we substitute 2a in this equation and compare with equation 1, we see that the x prime v must be linear functions of the x v. If we therefore put x prime v equals alpha v plus the summation of b v alpha times x alpha, or delta x prime v equals the summation b v alpha delta x alpha. Then the equivalence of equations 2 and 2a is expressed in the form sum delta x prime v squared equals lambda sum delta x v squared, lambda being independent of delta x v. It therefore follows that lambda must be a constant. If we put lambda equal to 1, 2b and 3a furnish the conditions sum b v alpha b v beta equals do alpha beta in which do alpha beta equals 1 or do alpha beta equals 0 according as alpha equals beta or alpha does not equal beta. The conditions are called the conditions of orthogonality, and the transformations, 3 and 4, linear orthogonal transformations. If we stipulate that s squared equals the sum of delta x v squared shall be equal to the square of the length in every system of coordinates, and if we always measure with the same unit scale, then lambda must be equal to 1. Therefore, the linear orthogonal transformations are the only ones by means of which we can pass from one Cartesian system of coordinates in our space of reference to another. We see that in applying such transformations, the equations of a straight line become equations of a straight line. Reversing equations 3a by multiplying both sides by b v beta and summing for all the v's we obtain sum b v beta delta x prime v equals sum b v alpha b v beta delta x alpha equals sum do alpha beta delta x alpha equals delta x beta. The same coefficients b also determine the inverse substitution of delta x v. Geometrically, b v alpha is the cosine of the angle between the x prime v axis and the x alpha axis. To sum up, we can say that in the Euclidean geometry there are, in a given space of reference, preferred systems of coordinates 
the Cartesian systems, which transform into each other by linear orthogonal transformations. The distance s between two points of our space of reference, measured by a measuring rod, is expressed in such coordinates in a particularly simple manner. The whole of geometry may be founded upon this conception of distance. In the present treatment, geometry is related to actual things, rigid bodies, and its theorems are statements concerning the behavior of these things, which may prove to be true or false. One is ordinarily accustomed to study geometry divorced from any relation between its concepts and experience. There are advantages in isolating that which is purely logical and independent of what is, in principle, incomplete empiricism. This is satisfactory to the pure mathematician. He is satisfied if he can deduce his theorems from axioms correctly, that is, without errors of logic. The question as to whether Euclidean geometry is true or not does not concern him. But for our purpose, it is necessary to associate the fundamental concepts of geometry with natural objects. Without such an association, geometry is worthless for the physicist. The physicist is concerned with the question as to whether the theorems of geometry are true or not. That Euclidean geometry, from this point of view, affirms something more than the mere deductions derived logically from definitions may be seen from the following simple consideration. Between n points of space, there are n times n minus 1, all divided by two distances, s mu v. Between these and the three n coordinates, we have the relations s mu v squared equals x1 mu minus x1 v all squared, plus x2 mu minus x2 v all squared, plus, and so on. From these n, n minus 1, all over 2 equations, the three n coordinates may be eliminated, and from this elimination, at least n times n minus 1, all over 2, minus 3 n equations, in the s mu v will result. Footnote. In reality, there are n times n minus 1 all over 2 minus 3n plus 6 equations. End of footnote. Since the s mu v are measurable quantities and by definition are independent of each other, these relations between s mu v are not necessary a priori. From the foregoing, it is evident that the equations of transformation 3 and 4 have a fundamental significance in Euclidean geometry in that they govern the transformation from one Cartesian system of coordinates to another. The Cartesian systems of coordinates are characterized by the property that in them the measurable distance between two points, s, is expressed by the equation s squared equals the sum of delta xv squared. If k xv and k prime xv 
are two Cartesian systems of coordinates. Then the sum of delta x v squared equals the sum of delta x prime v squared. The right hand side is identically equal to the left hand side on account of the equations of the linear orthogonal transformation. And the right hand side differs from the left hand side only in that the xv are replaced by the x prime v. This is expressed by the statement that sum delta xv squared is an invariant with respect to linear orthogonal transformations. It is evident that in the Euclidean geometry, only such and all such quantities have an objective significance, independent of the particular choice of the Cartesian coordinates, as can be expressed by an invariant with respect to linear orthogonal transformations. This is the reason that the theory of invariance which has to do with the laws that govern the form of invariance, is so important for analytical geometry. As a second example of geometrical invariant, consider a volume. This is expressed by V equals integral dx1, dx2, dx3. By means of Jacobi's theorem, we may write integral dx prime 1, dx prime 2, dx prime 3 equals the integral of dou x prime 1, x prime 2, x prime 3 all over dou x1, x2, x3 times dx1, dx2, dx3, where the integrand in the last integral is the functional determinant of the x prime v with respect to the x v. And this, by equation 3, is equal to the determinant b mu v of the coefficients of substitution b v alpha. If we form the determinant of the dou mu alpha from equation 4, we obtain by means of the theorem of multiplication of determinants 1 equals the absolute value of dou alpha beta equals the absolute value of the sum b v alpha b v beta equals the absolute value of b mu v squared and b mu v equals plus or minus 1. If we limit ourselves to those transformations which have the determinant plus 1, and only these arise from the continuous variations of the systems of coordinates, then v is an invariant. Footnote. There are thus two kinds of Cartesian systems which are designated as right-handed and left-handed systems. The difference between these is familiar to every physicist and engineer. It is interesting to note that these two kinds of systems cannot be defined geometrically, but only the contrast between them. Invariants, however, are not the only forms by means of which we can give expression to the independence of the particular choice of the Cartesian coordinates. Vectors and tensors are other forms of expression. Let us express the fact that the point with the current coordinates xv lies upon a straight line. We have xv minus av 
equals lambda bv, v from 1 to 3. Without limiting the generality, we can put sum of bv squared equals 1. If we multiply the equations by b beta v, compare equation 3a and equation 5, and sum for all the v's, we get x prime beta minus a prime beta equals lambda b prime beta, where we have written b prime beta equals the sum of b beta v b v and a prime beta equals the sum of b beta v a v. These are the equations of straight lines with respect to a second Cartesian systems of coordinates k prime. They have the same form as the equations with respect to the original system of coordinates. It is therefore evident that straight lines have a significance which is independent of the system of coordinates. Formally, this depends upon the fact that the quantities xv minus av, all minus lambda bv, are transformed as the components of an interval, delta xv. The ensemble of three quantities defined for every system of Cartesian coordinates, and which transform as the components of an interval, is called a vector. If the three components of a vector vanish for one system of Cartesian coordinates, they vanish for all systems, because the equations of transformation are homogeneous. We can thus get the meaning of the concept of a vector without referring to a geometrical representation. This behavior of the equations of a straight line can be expressed by saying that the equation of a straight line is covariant with respect to linear orthogonal transformations. We shall now show briefly that there are geometrical entities which lead to the concept of tensors. Let P0 be the center of a surface of the second degree, P any point on the surface, and xi v the projections of the interval P0, P upon the coordinate axes. Then the equation of the surface is sum a mu v chi mu chi v equals 1. In this and in analogous cases, we shall omit the sign of summation and understand that the summation is to be carried out for those indices that appear twice. We thus write the equation of the surface A mu v chi mu chi v equals 1. The quantities A mu v determine the surface completely for a given position of the center with respect to the chosen system of Cartesian coordinates. From the known law of transformation for the chi v for linear orthogonal transformations, we easily find the law of transformation for the a mu v. a prime o rho b o mu b rho v a mu v. This transformation is homogeneous and of the first degree in the a mu v. On account of this transformation, the a mu v are called components of a tensor of the second rank, the latter on account of the double index. If all the components a mu v of a tensor with respect to any system of Cartesian coordinates vanish, 
they vanish with respect to every other Cartesian system. The form and the position of the surface of the second degree is described by this tensor, A. Analytic tensors of higher rank, number of indices, may be defined. It is possible and advantageous to regard vectors as tensors of rank 1 and invariants, scalars, as tensors of rank 0. In this respect, the problem of the theory of invariance may be so formulated. According to what laws may new tensors be formed from given tensors? We shall consider these laws now in order to be able to apply them later. We shall deal first only with the properties of tensors with respect to the transformation from one Cartesian system to another in the same space of reference by means of linear orthogonal transformations. As the laws are wholly independent of the number of dimensions, we shall leave this number n indefinite at first. Definition. If a figure is defined with respect to every system of Cartesian coordinates in a space of reference of n dimensions by the n to the alpha numbers a mu v p alpha equaling the number of indices, then these numbers are the components of a tensor of rank alpha if the transformation law is a prime mu prime v prime pho prime and so forth equals b mu prime mu b v prime v b pho prime pho and so forth a mu v pho and so forth remark from this definition it follows that a mu v pho and so forth equals b mu c v d pho and so forth is an invariant provided that b c d and so forth are vectors conversely the tensor character of a may be inferred if it is known that the expression eight leads to an invariant for an arbitrary choice of the vectors b c etc addition and subtraction by addition and subtraction of the corresponding components of tensors of the same rank a tensor of equal rank results a mu v pho etc plus or minus b mu v pho etc equals c mu v pho etc the proof follows from the definition of a tensor given above multiplication from a tensor of rank alpha and a tensor of rank beta we may obtain a tensor of rank alpha plus beta by multiplying all the components of the first tensor by all the components of the second tensor t mu v pho etc alpha beta etc equals a mu v pho etc b alpha beta lambda etc contraction a tensor of rank alpha minus two may be obtained from the rank of alpha by putting two definite indices equal to each other and then summing for this single index t pho and so forth equals a mu mu pho and so forth equals the sum of a mu mu pho and so forth the proof is 
a alpha mu mu pho and so forth equals b mu alpha b mu beta b pho lambda and so forth a alpha beta lambda equals do alpha beta b pho lambda and so forth a alpha beta lambda and so forth equals b pho lambda and so forth a alpha alpha lambda and so forth in addition to these elementary rules of operation there is also the formation of tensors by differentiation erweiterung t mu v pho etc alpha equals do a mu v pho and so forth all over do x alpha new tensors in respect to linear orthogonal transformations may be formed from tensors according to these rules of operation symmetrical properties of tensors tensors are called symmetrical or skew symmetrical in respect to two of their indices mu and v if both the components which result from interchanging the indices mu and v are equal to each other or equal with opposite signs condition for symmetry a mu v pho equals a v mu pho condition for skew symmetry a mu v pho equals negative a v mu pho theorem the character of symmetry or skew symmetry exists independently of the choice of coordinates and in this lies its importance the proof follows from the equation defining tensors. Special tensors. 1. The quantities do, pho, sigma are tensor components, fundamental tensor. Proof. If in the right-hand side of the equation of transformation a prime mu v equals b mu alpha b v beta a alpha beta, we substitute for a alpha beta the quantities do alpha beta, which are equal to one or zero according as alpha equals beta or alpha does not equal beta. We get a prime mu v equals b mu alpha b v alpha equals do mu v. The justification for the last sign of equality becomes evident if one applies equation four to the inverse substitution equation 5. 2. There is a tensor do mu v pho and so forth skew symmetrical with respect to all pairs of indices whose rank is equal to the number of dimensions n and whose components are equal to positive 1 or negative 1 according as mu v pho etc is an even or odd permutation of 1, 2, 3, etc. The proof follows with the aid of the theorem proved above. The absolute value of b pho sigma equals 1. These few simple theorems form the apparatus from the theory of invariance for building the equations of pre-relativity physics and the theory of special relativity. We have seen that in pre-relativity physics, in order to specify relations in space, a body of reference or a space of reference is required, and in addition a Cartesian system of coordinates, 
We can fuse both these concepts into a single one by thinking of a Cartesian system of coordinates as a cubical framework formed of rods each of unit length. The coordinates of the lattice points of this frame are integral numbers. It follows from the fundamental relation s squared equals delta x1 squared plus delta x2 squared plus delta x3 squared that the members of such a space lattice are all of unit length. To specify relations in time, we require in addition a standard clock placed at the origin of our Cartesian system of coordinates or frame of reference. If an event takes place anywhere, we can assign it to three coordinates, x, v, and a time, t, as soon as we have specified the time of the clock at the origin, which is simultaneous with the event. We therefore give an objective significance to the statement of the simultaneity of distant events. While previously we have been concerned only with the simultaneity of two experiences of an individual. The time so specified is at all events independent of the position of the system of coordinates in our space of reference, and is therefore an invariant with respect to the transformation. It is postulated that the system of equations expressing the laws of pre-relativity physics is covariant with the respect to the transformation 3, as are the relations of Euclidean geometry. The isotropy and homogeneity of space is expressed in this way. Footnote. The laws of physics could be expressed even in case there were a unique direction in space, in such a way as to be covariant with respect to the transformation 3. But such an expression would in this case be unsuitable. If there were a unique direction in space, it would simplify the description of natural phenomena to orient the system of coordinates in a definite way in this direction. But if, on the other hand, there is no unique direction in space, it is not logical to formulate the laws of nature in such a way as to conceal the equivalence of systems of coordinates that are oriented differently. We shall meet with this point of view again in the theories of special and general relativity. End footnote. We shall now consider some of the more important equations of physics from this point of view. The equations of motion of a material particle are m d squared xv over dt squared equal xv. dxv is a vector. dt, and therefore also 1 over dt, an invariant. Thus, dxv over dt is a vector. In the same way, it may be shown that d squared xv over dt squared is a vector. In general, the operation of differentiation with respect to time does not alter the tensor character. Since m is an invariant tensor of rank 0, m d squared xv over dt squared is a vector, or tensor of rank 1, by the theorem of the multiplication of tensors. If the force xv has a vector character, the same holds for the difference m times d squared xv over dt squared minus xv. These equations of motion are therefore valid in every other system of Cartesian coordinates in the space of reference. 
In the case where the forces are conservative, we can easily recognize the vector character of xv. For a potential energy, phi exists, which depends only upon the mutual distances of the particles and is therefore an invariant. The vector character of the force, xv, equals negative do phi all over do xv is then a consequence of our general theorem about the derivative of a tensor of rank zero. Multiplying by the velocity, a tensor of rank one, we obtain the tensor equation m times d squared xv over dt squared minus xv, all multiplied by dxv over dt, equals zero. By contraction and multiplication by the scalar dt, we obtain the equation of kinetic energy, d times mq squared over 2 equals xv dxv. If chi v denotes the difference of the coordinates of the material particle and a point fixed in space, then the chi v have the character of vectors. We evidently have d squared xv over dt squared equals d squared chi v over dt squared, so that the equations of motion of the particle may be written m times d squared chi v over dt squared minus xv equals zero. Multiplying this equation by chi mu, we obtain a tensor equation m d squared chi v over dt squared minus xv all multiplied by chi mu equals zero. Contracting the tensor on the left and taking the time average, we obtain the varial theorem, which we shall not consider further. By interchanging the indices and subsequent subtraction, we obtain, after a simple transformation, the theorem of moments. d over dt times m times chi mu times d chi v over dt minus chi v times d chi mu over dt equals chi mu xv minus chi v x mu. It is evident in this way that the moment of a vector is not a vector, but a tensor. On account of their skew-symmetrical character, there are not nine, but only three independent equations of this system. The possibility of replacing skew-symmetrical tensors of the second rank in space of three dimensions by vectors depends upon the formation of the vector a mu equals one-half a sigma rho do sigma rho mu. If we multiply the skew-symmetrical tensor of rank two by the special skew-symmetrical tensor do introduced above and contract twice, a vector results whose components are numerically equal to those of the tensor. These are the so-called axial vectors, which transform differently from a right-handed system to a left-handed system from the delta xv. There is a gain in picturesqueness in regarding a skew-symmetrical tensor of rank 2 as a vector in space of three dimensions, but it does not represent the exact nature of the corresponding quantity so well as considering it a tensor. We consider next the equations of motion as a continuous medium. 
Let pho be the density, u v the velocity components considered as functions of the coordinates, and the time x v the volume forces per unit of mass, and p v sigma the stresses upon a surface perpendicular to the sigma axis in the direction of increasing x v. Then the equations of motion are, by Newton's law, pho d u v over d t equals negative do p v sigma over do x sigma plus pho x v, in which d u v over d t is the acceleration of the particle, which at time t has the coordinates x v. If we express this acceleration by partial differential coefficients, we obtain, after dividing by pho, do uv over dt plus do uv over dx sigma times u sigma equals negative 1 over pho times do pv sigma over do x sigma plus xv. We must show that this equation holds independently of the special choice of the Cartesian system of coordinates. uv is a vector, and therefore do uv over do t is also a vector. do uv over do x sigma is a tensor of rank 2. do uv over do x sigma times u rho is a tensor of rank 3. The second term on the left results from a contraction of the indices sigma and rho. The vector character of the second term on the right is obvious. In order that the first term on the right may also be a vector, it is necessary for p v sigma to be a tensor. Then by differentiation and contraction, do p v sigma over do x sigma results and is therefore a vector as it also is after multiplication by the reciprocal scalar 1 over pho. That p v sigma is a tensor, and therefore transforms according to the equation p prime mu v equals b mu alpha b v beta p alpha beta, is proved in mechanics by integrating this equation over an infinitely small tetrahedron. It is also proved there by application of the theorem of moments to an infinitely small parallelopedion that p v sigma equals p sigma v, and hence that the tensor of the stress is a symmetrical tensor. From what has been said, it follows that with the aid of the rules given above, the equation is covariant with respect to orthogonal transformations in space, rotational transformations and the rules according to which the quantities in the equation must be transformed in order that the equation may be covariant also become evident. The covariance of the equation of continuity do pho over do t plus do pho uv over do xv equals zero requires from the foregoing no particular discussion. We shall also test for covariance the equations which express the dependence of the stress components upon the properties of the matter and set up these equations for the case of a compressible viscous fluid with the aid of the conditions of covariance. If we neglect the viscosity, the pressure, P, will be a scalar 
and will depend only upon the density and the temperature of the fluid. The contribution to the stress tensor is then evidently P do mu v, in which do mu v is the special symmetrical tensor. This term will also be present in the case of a viscous fluid, but in this case there will also be pressure terms which depend upon the space derivatives of the uv. We shall assume that this dependence is a linear one. Since these terms must be symmetrical tensors, the only ones which enter will be alpha multiplied by do u mu over do xv plus do uv over do x mu plus beta do mu v times do u alpha over do x alpha. For do u alpha over do x alpha is a scalar. For physical reasons, no slipping. It is assumed that for symmetrical dilations in all directions, for example, when do u1 over do x1 equals do u2 over do x2 equals do u3 over do x3, do u1 over do x2, etc. equals zero. There are no frictional forces present from which it follows that beta equals negative two-thirds alpha. If only do u1 over do x3 is different from zero, let p31 equal negative alpha multiplied by do u1 over do x3, by which A is determined. We then obtain for the complete stress tensor P mu V equals P do mu V minus alpha multiplied by do u mu over do x V plus do u V over do x mu minus two thirds multiplied by do u1 over do x1 plus do u2 over do x2 plus do u3 over do x3 multiplied by do mu v. The heuristic value of the theory of invariance, which arises from the isotropy of space, equivalence of all directions, becomes evident from this example. We consider finally Maxwell's equations in the form which are the foundation of the electron theory of Lorentz. Do H3 over Do X2 minus Do H2 over Do X3 equals 1 over C Do E1 over Do T plus 1 over C I1. Do H1 over Do X3 minus Do H3 over Do X1 equals 1 over C times Do E2 over Do T plus 1 over C I2. Do H2 over Do X1 minus Do H1 over Do X2 equals 1 over C times Do E3 over Do T plus 1 over C I3. Do E1 over Do X1 plus Do E2 over Do X2 plus Do E3 over Do X3 equals fo do e3 over do x2 minus do e2 over do x3 equals negative 1 over c times do h1 over do t do e1 over do x3 minus do e3 over do x1 
equals negative 1 over c do h2 over do t do e2 over do x1 minus do e1 over do x2 equals negative 1 over c times do h3 over do t do h1 over do x1 plus do h2 over do x2 plus do h3 over do x3 equals 0. I is a vector because the current density is defined as the density of electricity multiplied by the vector velocity of the electricity. According to the first three equations, it is evident that E is also to be regarded as a vector. Then H cannot be regarded as a vector. Footnote. These considerations will make the reader familiar with tensor operations. Without the special difficulties of the four-dimensional treatment, corresponding considerations in the theory of special relativity, Minowski's interpretation of the field, will then offer fewer difficulties. End footnote. The equations may, however, easily be interpreted if H is regarded as a skew-symmetrical tensor of the second rank. In this sense, we write H23, H31, H12, in place of H1, H2, and H3, respectively. Paying attention to the skew symmetry of H mu V, the first three equations of 19 and 20 may be written in the form of Do H mu V over Do XV equals 1 over C times Do E mu over Do T plus 1 over C I mu Do E mu over Do XV minus Do E V over do x mu equals 1 over c times do h mu v over do t. In contrast to e, h appears as a quantity which has the same type of symmetry as an angular velocity. The divergence equations then take the form do e v over do x v equals pho, do h mu v over do x pho plus do h v pho over do x mu, plus do h pho mu over do x v equals zero. The last equation is a skew-symmetrical tensor equation of the third rank. The skew-symmetry of the left-hand side with respect to every pair of indices may easily be proved if attention is paid to the skew-symmetry of h mu v. This notation is more natural than the usual one, because in contrast to the latter, it is applicable to Cartesian left-handed systems as well as to right-handed systems, without change of sign. End of the Meaning of Relativity, Lecture 1